So today's podcast is with Sarah Appleby. Uh, Apples, as I know her, uh, is the learning experience manager at Squiz. I knew her when I first came over to Australia. She was the uh, learning designer at Booper, uh, is one of the sharpest minds of learning that I've worked with over the last few years and, and one of the kindest, nicest people I've worked with well. So it's always great to catch up with her. Uh, she's got a great mind and really enjoyed chatting with Apples today and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, how you doing? Sorry, just pouring myself a glass of water. That's that's okay. Now you're coming you're coming through loud and clear on take two. Great. So um this is this is a, this is our second time around because because last week um it's 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 on me. Uh the audio wasn't as good, it's nothing to do with you or me. And um and so we're gonna do this again and but it's just gonna feel as fresh as the first time. <laughs> I thought it might have been because of all the uh, yelling at my child I was doing through the meeting that you were like, let's do that again. <laughs> no, I like no, that, that I'm I'm fine. I think that's the reality of anyone doing this stuff for the next couple of years, is they're gonna be surrounded by um, little humans. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for uh, once again joining the Learning to Fly podcast. Uh, so Sarah, for every for everyone out there, uh, what do you do? What's your what's your gig? What's my gig? Uh, yeah, so my my title is learning experience manager, and I got to make that up myself, which I was pretty pleased about. So uh, I work in a, a tech company, um, and I have two roles. One of them is to sort of support the business with internal capability development, and so I work with people and culture and talent acquisition, and also all the different business unit leads to make sure people know how to do their job but it's um well uh but it's also really making sure that you know processes are well done and embedded in the organization it isn't just about creating training often it is about digging a bit deeper and seeing what the actual where in the actual problem might lie and helping them solve that problem and it might require some training as an output um and then it could be just simplifying information it could, yeah, exactly. It could be about simplifying the information flow or maybe just thinking about, yeah, how are you doing things and is there a better way of doing it or maybe you're doing it just fine, you just haven't articulated it and therefore it's really hard to share with others. Um, and, yeah, obviously respond to the business. They can come to me as well and uh, think they have a learning problem and maybe they do, maybe they maybe they don't. Um, and then I also work with the, the customer training side of things, so making sure that our customers uh, are enabled into how to use our, our product um, yeah. very simply. And I, it's, I do learning design, so there's obviously a strategic element, but mostly I'm kind of I'm down there creating learning as well, hands-on. Yeah. So, so, what, so how, how is, how is uh, you know, from talking with your colleagues and things and, and obviously squizzes, in a number of places worldwide, how 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 has the how has the pandemic been impacting everyone across your business? Is it? Yeah, um, yeah, we're really we're very lucky. All our off, we're a global company, and we have offices in the states, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. So we're in countries that are probably well suited to having uh, a distributed workforce. 
and on top of that we're a, a, you know we're a digital tech company so we're also we can pick up our computers or laptops you know and kind of hook them in and start working from anywhere and of course uh, as an Australian organization at least we have a, a flexible work from home policy so people do work from home from time to time however there was a really big shift you know back in mid-March where um, out went the message, um, take your laptop home every day because the next day you might not be coming back to the office. And then that happened. We all received the call saying, I mean, I think England went first. Um, yeah. They were based, They were told to start working from home um, only first and then Australia and then America, which kind of I think represents the flow of the pandemic as well if you look at it. So it was a big shift uh, culturally for us, I think. Um, but it was made easier by the nature of our work and um, I guess the country that we work in with access to good quality internet, et cetera. Yeah, I think the I think the working from home from time to time, I think you can remove the time to time for a lot of places now. Yeah, yeah um, it's not time to time. It's a hundred percent for all of us. Um, so we're you know, we're six weeks into it and I think what we've learnt is that it's not an it's not an end user problem. <laughs> You know, yeah. people have actually adapted to it um, really well. People are very keen to do their work um, and to be seen doing their work. It's really around how you enable people in that situation. Uh, do they have clarity around what they're doing and why they're doing it? Do they have the tools to communicate with each other well despite being separate from each other? And that's sort of problems you should be solving even when you're all in an office somewhere. Yeah, it could be that maybe... Um... COVID is the one thing that drags learning, kicking and screaming um, into, into in, often into a more enlightened age. Um, so what's your, what's your take looking at the industry? Because, you know, again, I've known, I've known you since I moved over here to Australia and I've seen you and I've seen how you work and, and, and how good you are at what you do. When you sort of survey the, I guess, the learning industry going forward, is there are there any sort of things that you think will be changing that won't be coming back, or what do you think the bigger what do you what do you how do you think this is going to shake up how learning is done? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, how long have we known each other for, Stu? Uh, since twenty twelve. <laughs> that's that's a good run. That's great. And uh, oh, eight, 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 eight years, and you're still talking to absolutely. Me. I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, me too. Um, oh, I've. I've enjoyed every minute that I've had a chance to work with you and your team. It's so much fun. Um, it's, you know, it's good quality work and it's also very creative work. So I'm grateful for that. Um, so what I think, you know, because I work, I've worked in, you know, online learning, I guess, for quite a while. And some of the trends that have been happening with, you know, the rise of the, the MOOCs and just this phenomenal access to information, um, that is, I think, the curve on that is going to steepen somewhat and it's probably just going to normalise what we've kind of been doing for such a long time. Um, but some of the biggest impact, I guess, and, this, and I could be wrong, but where I see it is on these bigger events that people come to. You know, um, Adobe just had its, uh, you know, its a big conference and instead of flying thousands of people into one location, and I'm sure they have an absolutely fabulous time, um, those events will now be online and accessible to a lot more people who would have otherwise been able to join that in person. So I think you'll see a lot of these bigger experiences being available, a bit like T 
TED, how that was originally and how it is now. We can all access it. You can actually still fly into TED or maybe pre-COVID you could fly into TED yeah. and pay a heap of money and get to hobnob with some really great people. Um, but moving forward, TED will just be 100% online TED that we're all used to. Yeah, I think it, I think we talked about this the other week that I think there's a the the the, the leveling of the playing field when it comes to privilege, um, and and I don't know if you've ever read Ready Player One, one of my favourite books, but the idea of the in, in the future that there's a an online world that basically everyone um, spends all their time in, but what happens is it doesn't matter if you're the poorest person in the poorest part of the world if you've got access. Um, and it's free so if you can access basically online you can get the same education you can have the same experiences very much as 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 the richest person so I think it's um because I was looking at that you know the, I think we talked the other week about the um the the dangerous ideas yeah. um, festivals over the weekend and of course they were live streaming it but post that they've put all of the sessions up online that you can kind of watch in your own time so you can kind of you can be part of the live experience and obviously um, potentially chat and ask questions and do things like that. But then post the experience, it's all still, you know, all that content is available. So I think that's that's got to be a good thing, right? It's got to be a good thing. And I think probably what we'll see, like you've, you've, it's talked about in the past, you know, access to the internet is going to become a basic human right. You know, yeah. if you don't have access to it, you're going to just miss out on so much. And one thing I think you just said that made, I think a lot of universities in their original kind of form, yes, you, uh, well, actually, in some countries and Australia in the past, university education was free. It was really this idea that, you know, people with the ability can come and they can learn at an education, get a good quality education at no cost because it benefits society. There is an investment that you're making in people that comes back in multiples. And while some universities now charge, basically there's nothing really, I don't know about Australia, but in the States at least, many universities, you can still walk in off the street and attend a lecture. You can yeah. still benefit from that. So this is just diminishing, I guess, the, the locality and it's telling everyone around the world, you can now walk in on this lecture and maybe you just need to pay for the certificate because to get a certificate you have to participate in project work or produce something that, you know, verifies that you um but otherwise yeah it's just um access to this sort of stuff the barriers will diminish even faster than they had previously yeah it's it's it's, it's even more uh it's going to be even more a, a digital a digital world that uh you know uh, us and especially our kids will be growing up in, and especially i think the next the next five years is going to be um the next five years is going to be a very strange time. Yeah, it's going to be a super interesting time. I mean, I'm really positive um, with the industry that we're in that it's just going to normalise a lot. I mean, I don't think what we do is kind of abnormal, but it is surprising sometimes, and you in an agency especially, you go to organisations and they're very immature in their approach to online uh, and distance forms of learning. This is just going to normalise it rapidly. Yeah, I think the, I think the people that, were, were, were against. I always sort of think the people that are against, uh, or you know, aren't fans of online learning. There's more to do with them having experiences of poor online, yeah. learning, uh, and 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 having a lot of content and a lot of assessment. And of course, if that if that's all I knew, if that's all I saw, I wouldn't be a fan either. But now I think obviously when it becomes a, it's a non-negotiable. We're going to have it. It's suddenly and, and as soon as you see something that's 
really well designed and engaging and interactive and relevant you're like oh okay yeah. we can it can be like this okay yeah fine. this can be relevant and fun and, and all those sort of things so yeah that's um that's probably the biggest shift and yeah it, it'll have big um well, we talked about that last week as well like how is it going to impact formal education like these institutions like universities and and now high schools and primary schools which hadn't really been on that journey I think uh, especially primary schools and high schools to the extent that they that they are now um, and I just want to send out a huge thank you to my son's school South Melbourne primary school because and I'm sure many other schools the same like they they pivoted really quickly to provide my son with an education remotely and um and also I'll call out to my mum who are you know they've called people like me iso nesters I think when you know this all came down I I flew back to the nest <laughs> yeah yeah and and your parents got to spend some more quality time with you that they probably thought they would wouldn't be they getting did. I completely smashed their retirement bubble but we've created our own little bubble now and it's quite good um but you know so those schools have now had to say oh well, how are we going to do this remotely effectively and it's there's gaps with the experience, but you know the, they've been forced to do it. And what, how is that going to influence them moving forward? Is really interesting. Yeah. So, so learning design. So we talked about this. So going going back, I'm I'm always intrigued with where, um, with how people get into learning, especially because it's not generally something that people plan. It's kind of a falling into or a discovering through different different experiences. So when you were back in the school days around 16, what was your what was your what did your career path look like? What did you want to do? Yeah, that's that's funny. It's a good reflection. So um I, I had two choices that I was um one was more phantasmic than the other one I guess. So one was a commercial pilot. Like I grew up in a in a in a nice but small country town in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And I wanted to see the world, you know. So I was like, okay, the best way to see the world and get paid is to be a commercial pilot. So that was one um, that I was considering. Um, and then the second one was uh, an environmental engineer. Um, you know, I loved the environment. I was always hiking and um, camping and abseiling and just very much an outdoorsy person and I had a real thirst for the sciences at school so environmental engineering made a great deal of sense for me. What does, so two things, where did the pilot stuff come from? Was there someone in your family that flew or like the love of planes? Like where did that come from? Um, no, um, I think it was really just a desire to, to see the world like and I don't know where that kind of sort of get out of the small town yeah, get out of the small town I knew I wanted to just travel overseas and um uh, you know I think my my parents generation were the generation that were starting to travel more internationally than maybe their parents so I, um but my parents really didn't travel that much until I moved out of home we you know we did the normal thing like we all got piled up in the car every holiday and shipped off to a caravan park and uh, yeah I'm always I'm, I'm always amazed when um, you know, kids and their parents are off overseas for different trips. It's like my parents didn't. <laughs> I, I, I think I went with my parents on a plane once when I was a kid, and that was to yeah. Sydney from 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 Wellington in New Zealand. Like I, what we, yeah, we never flew. No, anywhere. we didn't fly anywhere either. We went, I went to New Zealand once with my dad, and that was pretty fancy. Other than that, yeah, it was like in the car, usually a vomit stop along the way because it was just an awful long trip and. 
you know, your brother terrorizing you next to you in the seat. Like it was, there, there, it was horrendous, but the camping was great. Like obviously going to caravan parks with lots of other kids and stuff like that. But yeah, no international travel. That was, that was a pipe dream. Yeah. And, 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 and the environment, like an environmental engineer, what, what does an environmental engineer oh, do? Yeah, well, I didn't become one. <laughs> so I, for me, I guess it's looking at, you know, you can be working around sustainability, environmental sustainability in different uh, sectors. And the Hunter Valley is famous for, um, I guess, three things. is wineries, cows and coal mines. And, you know, my dad worked in the coal mines and my mum was a nurse and I just, looked at the coal mines and even then despite all the obfuscation we knew that that was a dirty industry and wasn't sustainable and uh, I was like well you know I think I should do environmental engineering because I can be part of the, the solution I guess. Yeah and I guess that you know that you would have been very much ahead of the curve in terms of a lot of that stuff that was almost fringe back then is very much mainstream I think now, so it? like at the time I, I, I did um when I did my high school certificate I got into the University of Newcastle to study environmental engineering and it was I think it was only the it had only been offered recently as sort of like a separate thing so but I didn't do either of those things I ended up becoming a telecommunications engineer <laughs> and, and, and that's so you you knew how to take how to take things apart and put them back together again? <laughs> no, that's a funny story. Actually, I worked with, so I could put, I could build, a, I could put together a base station and I could, well, I could, um, but not pull it down to its chipboard. Like, no, it was more around installing them and um, implementing them. So, no, I, I, never, I wasn't a computer engineer or an electrical engineer, although there were elements of electrical engineering completed, included in the study. But I got into that simply because I, um, it was the time when Telstra was deregulating, Optus came along, they were offering cadetship program. And, you know, I come from a blue collar family and that was a way for me to get an education that would um, be paid for. Um, so there would be no kind of like student debt. And uh, I, I did the exam and um, I was lucky and the interviews. <laughs> what was the word? There was a one word in the, uh, I can't remember. But, yeah, I was really grateful and really fortunate to get into that. I think I was one of three uh, girls in the course. That was diversity at the time. I still probably is in engineering, to be honest, depending on the type of engineering. And then that's how I started. So I was doing that for a while. And then I I got into training, if we make the leap forward, because I'm taking up a lot of time. Um, I was working in the switching centre in Sydney for Optus, and it it was looking after all the fibre networks. And I just remember sitting there in a dark room looking at a screen thinking like, this is not what I want to do with my life. You know, I want to be kind of like, I want to be seeing the world, you know, I want to be kind of outside as well. And there was a job for a base station installation um, technician for Nokia in Indonesia. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, Yeah. I can do that. (laughs) And uh, so I sent in my resume and I actually got an interview and, um, they're like, look, we really, we really like you, but we can't send, you know, what a twenty-five-year-old woman to Indonesia by herself to install base stations. And I was horrified. I was like, well, why not? <laughs> and they said, but what we'd like to do is offer you a role as a training engineer. So basically, training people on our systems. 
um, and it was our, their switching systems. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I got, I became a technical trainer for a number of years. And the story about being pulling things apart, one of our trainers, he was hilarious. He was, he, in a class, actually disassembled a whole phone down to the board and then couldn't put it back together. It was, it was hilarious. So. I, I love how much of a role PlayStation has played in, in your career. <laughs> um, are you, are you uh, are you as good on the PlayStation in terms of uh, as well as breaking <laughs> no. it down? Are, are you are you? No, a gamer? you know I'm not. I never was. I, I can't even. I, I no, actually, even growing up, I never got into gaming at all. I was outdoors. Like if you wanted to find me, I was outdoors doing something, yeah. or or ballroom dancing. That's my other secret. I did ballroom dancing for far too long. Yeah. Nice. nice. <laughs> What's the, what's the what's your what's your favorite? Ah, uh, the waltz. Yeah, I, I did all the different genres, but I always did like the waltz. It was just it's just beautiful. I like the timing. Yeah. So, so from technical training, what was the? Because you know, again, you're you're. I've seen you know, how you work and how you think and and the way you you know your your design methodology. What was your big? Um, leap from you know sort of switching over from you know obviously this is how you do this thing technically this is how you do this thing to more of the uh more more of that sort of fully rounded learning design was it was it formal education was it a certain book was it a what or, or a website or what was your what was your way of figuring this thing out and going oh i think i could do this thing quite yeah i think um it's a bit of a it is a combination of those i did go back and do formal uh adult education with the University of Technology in Sydney. And I think that was really useful. Um, it didn't at that time have a stream dedicated to online learning design. Um, so I also obviously had to do a train the trainer so for, which it's pretty practical, you know, it, not, you know, but it's, uh, I don't know, it seems one of the things that you always have to have. Um, but primarily I moved you know, I, you really do sort of learn on the job and you learn through watching other fantastic trainers when you're when you're a face-to-face -face trainer. You know, you're watching other people and seeing how they do their role and sort of get the mastery through that. Um, you also have to look at your material. And I just, I think I have a curious mindset and a continuous improvement mindset where I'm looking at stuff and like, well, how does that work? And how can we do it better? And how can it be more enjoyable? You know, like, how can we just yeah. make this more fun like if I'm not having fun I hate to think what's happening to the people who are doing my learning because it must just be boring them to tears um you know and so I guess it's just a mindset that's kind of propelled me forward and you keep up with the learning trends so by the time I found myself in you know doing online learning design I actually created the very first online learning module for Nokia it's pretty it's my one claim to fame I guess <laughs> <laughs> so that's going it shows how how old I am and how long I've been in the system but you know it was like a what did you build oh, it in gosh it, it was all bespoke yeah it was all yeah. bespoke yeah. it was like building a website uh, except it had to obviously be SCORM it still had a SCORM standard at that time Don't yeah I know SCORM. right let's talk about LMSs um, so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was part of the, I worked for, I moved to Finland and I became part of the Nokia Research Centre team that was rolling out the first learning management system and online content for Nokia at the time. 
Um, and that was just a, a, a Rita Vanska, I'll do a call out to her as well. She was just an amazing boss and a, a thought leader and, and all these things. So definitely learned a heap, a heap through her. Um, yeah, and, and 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 speaking of of other amazing bosses with uh, Joe yeah. Jasmine, who we know, how did you? How did you? Because I I, I, can't, I don't think I've talked to you about it. How did you? How did you end up at Booper? Yeah, so um, I so I was uh, I worked for a, an e learning agency called um, Online Learning Australia. And I'd just come back from New York. I'd been over there for a few years working for OLA. And they said to me, oh, my God, we've got the most difficult customer. She would know this. So I'm not saying this out of <laughs> Like, we can't, we're not winning. We're going to lose this account. It's, it's the worst. You need to go save this. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I walking into? And I walked in and there was Joe. And Joe is... You know, she's one of my closest friends now and she's so warm but she's passionate about everything. And she was yeah. just doing her job. She was trying to get the best outcome that she could get and we were using a lot of um, products that hadn't been used before and she wasn't an instructional designer and she just wasn't getting the support that no. she needed from an instructional perspective, nor was she meeting her deadlines. So it was a bit of a... Uh, uh, there's a lot of reasons it was going to fail so yeah I basically got then shut up in a room a very small little room with Joe for probably three months where we just worked side by side shoulder to shoulder yeah. head down and and got the job done and then she said hey come and work here all the time because I, I, don't, I don't yeah pretty around. much yeah she's like I'd like I think I contracted to her then after that for about or six to 12 months and she's like I can't keep paying you this money you're gonna have to come work for us full time yeah I got I got the same deal hey do you want to come on full time yeah. so I can pay you less and uh you can't say no to Joe no you can't <laughs> um so that's another um, yeah amazing amazing boss and you know I've been really lucky I think with some of the leaders that I've had um and she's definitely counts up there I mean like I said we're good friends now yeah people I think that it's like the classic of know, know what you're looking for and then find the person and then get out of their way and mm. let them do the thing that you hired them to do and trust them. And give yeah, them Joe autonomy. trusted me a great deal, um, which, and, you know, I, you know, I'm a better people leader because of, because of her as well. Like the one thing I, with Joe, which was new for me was like, she's just, she leads from the heart, you know, she's a relationship person first. And, you know, I'm mm. probably still a task orientated person first. You know, and um, yep. but I learned through her that you know, no, the relationship is important. It does need to be nurtured. You just can't all be about driving tasks. You know, so yeah, that was a good learning for me from Joe. Yeah, you're dealing with you're dealing yeah, with hearts and minds. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then, yep. Yeah. So, um, so jumping back because I and we talked about this, but I'm going to talk about it again. So when I'm, I'm always intrigued as to um what your what your first music discovery was what album that you bought that uh that wasn't through your parents that you kind of discovered all on your own and became your kind of your first your first musical thing that's yeah that took you forward and and, and also it ends up almost helping shape your identity i think music at, at it, when you're a teenager plays a big role in yeah. identity what was your 
What was your yeah, so, wow. well, firstly, I was very lucky to have um, parents that played great music and had a fantastic sound system set up at home. Like, so I was just exposed to good music loud. Um, so that was fantastic. Um, What's oh, yeah, Fleetwood Mac and uh, all that sort of, yeah, good music. I can't go linear. But that, so yeah. I think great big music. They were kind of into the big music, but not particularly like rock and roll or anything like that. I don't know. Would you say if they would make a rock and roll? Yeah. I don't think so. But they, yeah, sort of, so, 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 I don't know, sort of soft rock. <laughs> so many know. genres. Um, and so yeah. my first discovery, which didn't exist in their album collection, was um, so I don't know how old I was, probably 13 or 14. I watched The Labyrinth for the first time. And there was Jared the Goblin King, it just full screen. And it's a, obviously it's a musical movie as well. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this human? I have to find out. And, of course, it's David Bowie. And the first album yeah. that I purchased was Let's Dance. And um, and yeah, the first concert I ever went to was the Glass Spider Tour by David Bowie. I found the tickets oh, in awesome. my chest next to my bed at home the other night. I just yeah, I, I flipped out. Mum had kept them for me. And without a doubt, David Bowie has made me a better person. You know, just his not just his music, but the way he sees the world, um, the way he presented himself to the world. You know, like yeah, he's um. I'm a lot more, I think, open-minded um, about the world because of I've someone like David Bowie on YouTube, uh, just inspires um, probably, me. Yeah, it's probably like only about three years after because you know the internet was like 1995. This is probably like 98, and he's having a. It's on. It's a, mm. it's on YouTube. It's a. It's BBC. It's and it's the future internet chat, and it's him talking for like 15 minutes with a yeah. guy about where he thinks the internet is going. And my God, it's like. What he thinks is going to was going to yeah. happen, everything he says has happened. It's amazing. Absolutely, like I have seen that, and the the his face is just totally confused. Like he has no idea what he's talking about. But it's do you watch and it? And you're like the he's, earliest, he's spot on. He's just right. He had such of, of net of like people were still using Netscape and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's scary to think like you're born before the internet and born before even yeah, search was, browsers uh, and stuff. Yeah, he it's was a, he was an amazing individual. I played. What's that? What what is that main song from Labyrinth? The 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 dancing song that he does. What's the name of that one again? Yeah, I I played I played and that clip to my dance. three year old the other day, <laughs> and she was terrified, and I didn't realize because I was like, oh, I love that song, and I put it on with her. And of course, the little kids crying in the video, and and I forgot how scary all the puppets were. And um, we had to like, and I was like really getting into it. And my wife was like, "Stu, you need to like stop the video because she's looking mortified." So um, yeah, she's a bit young. You don't really think about it. Yeah, like I think I've I've taken Elon obviously on his um his journey and uh, the labyrinth has appeared and I realized it was too early. I was like, yeah, I was, I was much older before I watched this. I also took him through the dark crystal and he was watching it and he's, yeah. he looked at me and he's like, what do you I, like I, about I, this? I, I, I still, yeah, I found the dark crystal scary as when I was a kid, there's something about Jim Henson and the way they do those. Yeah. 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 Ye
puppets. They look a lot more real than CGI. Oh, oh they do. Mind you, the yeah, new Dark Crystal is, is Well, look, I'm, I'm going yeah. to leave you there. Um, it was awesome to chat with you again. And when are you coming back? Did you say sort of it's in, in June? Yeah. Yeah, they've changed the school days and everything, but um, my plan is still to come back well, uh, early July. To, so I'll um, be back catching up with you and, and sitting a couple of metres apart at a table and having a good catch up. 